Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. We are going to wade out into some interesting and adventurous seas with this conversation, and I've been looking forward to it for a long time. Dr. Rob Larter is joining us. He is the Deputy Science Leader of Paleo Environments with the British Antarctic Survey, which is part of their National Environment Research Council. He is an adventurer, he is a researcher, he is a scientist, and he is doing work that very few people get to do and sees places and things that very few people get to see. So this is going to be very, very exciting. Before we jump into that conversation, I just want to please invite everybody to please come and look at the website for Explore the Space, www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can find me on Twitter. I'm very active on social media, at ETS Show. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. And you can find Explore the Space on all of your favorite podcast platforms, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify, whichever ones you like, you'll find Explore the Space there. Please do take the opportunity to subscribe. We've got lots of content coming. It's going to be coming at you all year. And please do take the chance to leave a rating and a review. That's a really important tool for people who are looking for podcasts, what I like to call window shopping for podcasts, to find shows that are important to you. So whether it's Explore the Space or some other show that you like, please give that show a rating and a review. It's a really, really important tool, and it's much appreciated by myself and everyone else out there creating podcast content. So Rob Larger is here. This is going to be a ton of fun. Rob, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, and for thank you for a, a very generous introduction. You are back on terra firma. You're back in your office in Cambridge, but you spend a fair amount of time aboard a ship exploring and studying ice sheets in Antarctica. Let's just yep, start that's... there. Tell, tell, Give us a snapshot of what it's like to be on a boat doing scientific work and being an explorer in Antarctica. Well, I, I have to say it's uh, it's probably the the easier option rather than going and, and living on the ice for for several months and uh, <laughs> living in a pyramid tent and going around on a skidoo. Although that's that sounds very attractive the way I've described it. So that, that's real hardship, you know. Uh, right. On a ship, uh, at least uh, there's always somewhere you can go with a, a comfortable. Uh, temperature and and you know uh, somebody else prepares your meals uh, three times a day so uh, I, I think it's quite a cushy number in terms of exploring a place like like antarctica and uh, and also uh, the ship takes you to so many amazing places uh, you don't have to to make the effort to drive yourself there you you, uh, you know you just uh, ride along as a passenger and you end up at some absolutely incredible places if that's where your research is I love the way you juxtapose this with something more intimidating than what I was already perceiving as being quite a quite an ordeal, perhaps being on board a ship in our, in Antarctica. I found you on Twitter. I found you on social media, and one of your most recent tweets was uh, uh, an image. I think it was a short video file that shows the way that Antarctic seas can whirl and swirl, and the effect that it can have on a boat. And that just got me feeling green just looking at it. Yeah, I, I I've forgotten where that came from. I just retweeted it, and uh, then then uh, a lot of people retweeted my retweet. Oh it's, my it's, goodness it's, gracious! It's obvious, it was one of those memes that really travelled. It certainly did. It certainly so. So let's get into this though. You do hardcore science. You do 
really important life science work, and you've been doing it for a long time. You've been part of the British Antarctic Survey since 1987, and for it looks like about 15 or so years, you are focusing on on ice sheet history. So step us through some fundamentals of the work that you're doing. We have people that listen to the show who come here from all different perspectives, whether they have a, a background in science, whether their background is in something else. They come into this space because they're curious and they're interested. Lay in some fundamentals for us of what the study of ice sheet history is looking at. Okay, so I'm a marine geophysicist, really. So I use various kinds of physical methods to, to study the Earth's crust and, and well, the seafloor particularly, uh, the sediments on the seafloor and the hard rocks at, at greater depth beneath the seafloor. And what I've been doing is trying to apply that to understand the long-term history of, of ice sheets, because the problem is, particularly for many of the important parts of the Antarctic ice sheet, the, the really good observational record only uh, stretches back 25 or 30 years. And changes that take place in, in ice sheets, when, when they're perturbed, when uh, you know, they get a kick from a temperature rise. The, the changes take place over much longer periods than that. So if we want to understand how an ice sheet responds to a climate change, we need to have a much longer record of, of how it's behaved. And, and you know, we can get that from geological archives, from uh, looking at the, the way the distribution of sediments on the seafloor and their ages uh, so we, we study them with physical methods, and I work closely with marine geologists who take sediment cores from the seafloor, which we can date material in to, to find out when various changes happened. When we apply this to where we sit now in 2019, when we're looking at a new era of climate change and the obviously rapid change and evolution and melting of ice sheets around, you know, in all of the areas that we like to perceive as being really cold, how do we then juxtapose this work that you're doing to lay in that background, to, to understand that history, to help us? Does that then help us better understand what's happening right in front of us today? Uh, I think it does, yes, because with the short observational record that we have from satellite observations and from people taking very precise uh, measurements, um, that doesn't capture the full range of variation that can happen. Uh, if we look back through our geological archives, we see there have been some times where there was very uh, dramatic change. And well, I mean, in, in simple terms, if you look back to the last glacial period, uh, we worry about sea level rise over today over inches and feet. Uh, the, the total sea level rise since the last glacial period is, is uh, 120 meters so that's that's getting on for 300 feet isn't it so, no it's more than 300 feet yeah that is and so that's an interesting perspective give us your sense i mean you're the you're our boots on the ground scientist here you're seeing things that the rest of us only get to see retweeted on social media or a short clip on the news as you're doing your work and as you're studying this I'm trying to think of the right words because I'm still, you know, I've been feverishly reading about what you do and I have a science background, but to not just understand the, the, the hardcore science aspect, but then to apply it to our understanding of climate change, what is your sense and what is your team's sense of what is actually beginning to happen or already happening? Well, right now we're, we're focusing on this part of West Antarctica where for the last 25 years, 
rapid and accelerating change has been happening, rapid and accelerating ice loss and trying to understand what's going on there and to provide the basis so that uh, people can use models to, to predict how it's going to evolve into the future. And this, because this is the, the biggest unknown in predicting sea level rise around the world is, is what the polar ice sheets are going to do. And what we're focusing on right now is, is the bit of Antarctica, which is, is looking most, uh, most vulnerable. So as you're doing that work, are there moments where you're having, is it rote? Is it day by day? Is it a daily grind? Are there moments of eureka? Are there moments of, holy cow, this is really alarming. This is really unsettling. What are the rhythms yes, of life when you're on that ship doing this work? Yeah, I mean, the, there is a, a lot of routine, absolutely. I yeah. mean, you have to have a routine. Uh, a research ship is a very expensive piece of infrastructure to operate. So uh, we we have to organize people into shifts so that the, there are people to carry out all the activities around the clock. Yep. Um, so, yeah, everybody's working midday to midnight or midnight to, to midday or some other shift. And, and, you know, they've got a lot of basic tasks to do to make sure equipment is, is running properly, to put equipment in the water, get equipment out of the water, deal with the samples, uh, make sure everything's labeled, things just f- fundamental things like that. Uh, and then you do get uh, real eureka moments, uh, I mean, uh, or really shocking moments. So one thing we do is we watch, obviously, to work in the areas we do, we have to have really good information about sea ice distribution. So we're looking at satellite images every day to see where is going to be reasonably easy to operate and where is a no-go area. And then uh, some days, one day in the middle of this cruise, there was such a dramatic change in the glacier front. Uh, it really blew us away. that uh, There was this area of what we call melange, which is uh, an area of a, a lot of large icebergs that are uh, glued together with with sea ice and um, that that had been not doing much throughout the whole period we'd been there and we'd been working along the front of it and then uh, within a day it, it just it was almost like somebody had set off a bomb within it and it, it expanded to cover twice the area with icebergs going everywhere oh my gosh uh, uh, so the, the the contrast between the before and afterwards was 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 quite amazing and uh, yeah and then when that melange is gone, there's there's very little uh, between where you can go with a ship and, and the grounding line of that glacier now, because historically it's always had a, a an ice shelf in front of it. So that then starts your mind racing about what the consequences of that are going to be. Um, and, and another instance was uh, I was just what the chief scientist does a lot of is a lot of just sitting in front of a computer and dealing with reports and so on. And I, I was <laughs> right. sitting doing that one day and, and somebody just uh, phoned me up and said, I think you should come and look at this. And we've got just the most amazing seafloor features on the sonar data. Uh, and yeah, that then followed half an hour with everybody speculating and trying to understand what they were. Because these, these are things that were clearly formed very close to the, where the ice goes afloat. These are just the most incredible things, and I and I love that idea of you're right there when this transformative things happen to an ice shelf. It must be both absolutely enrapturing, but also terrifying. Um, I don't think I I felt terrified. I mean, we, no, we okay. had 
very capable people yeah. operating the ship. It's, okay. a, it's a, fair enough. <laughs> the ship has been to and from Antarctica a lot of times and yeah. operated in. Uh, yeah. it, it's very capable of operating uh, in ice. I, I think the one time I felt a little bit worried is is when we we finally decided to call an end to the season because we could see that the, the sea ice was closing in to the north of us. We'd been working in an open water area that you call it, it's called a pollinia. So uh, sometimes within areas that are totally covered with sea ice, you get some open water uh, for the, that opens up for various reasons. And that, that's the way it was in the Amazon Sea this year. There was a band of ice uh, across the edge of the continental shelf, and then inside that there was open water, which is a, a sort of place we can work. But we, we had to find a way in, and then we had to find a way out. And uh, we could see towards the end of our cruise that the, the way out was closing up on us. So we 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 decided to make uh, uh, to the, the pragmatic decision. We decided it was time to leave yeah. uh, for the first about 12 hours of trying to leave. We really weren't getting very far. And then I, I, I did uh, have a moment thinking, have we left this too late? Oh my goodness gracious. So when you're yeah. on the ship and you're, and you're right, you know, you're right out there in the ice, how long are you aboard ship for before you rotate back home? Most research cruises I've done in the last few seasons are one to two months. This was, okay. uh, yeah, this one was just about two months uh, away. And you speak of these seasons. What is what is this? What is the season? Is it a research season? This is all weather dependent, I imagine. Well, yeah. So we we talk about an Antarctic season. I mean, we mean an Antarctic summer. Okay. Because uh, that's that spans uh, two calendar years usually. So uh, you know, right now we're in the the fall in Antarctica. There's a there's a slight disparity between what people regard who work onshore regards the season, where the most important thing to them is the day length. So mm-hmm. their 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 season is centered around late December. Okay. Whereas uh, if you work at sea on a research ship, uh, the primary factor of what's the prime season is when there's the least sea ice, which is February. And then these trips, these one to two months trips, when you finish one, how long before you're able to go out again? Uh, well, right now I, I've been in each of the last three years and then uh, I, I had a year off and then I went the year before. Okay. Two so, years of succession before so that. It's, so it's one trip per year. You make a trip that, and then you come back home. Yeah, and that's um, – in a way that's too much. But uh, okay. you know, there's lots of, lots of exciting work to be done and uh, – I don't know. Sometimes I'm I'm probably a bit too much like a kid in a, a candy store, oh, I can and only I can't imagine. leave it alone. Want to do everything? Oh my gosh! So then, when you're doing your projects, you have a month or a month and a half. Are the projects structured so that they're standalones, or are you layering them on top of the work that have been that were that you've done on previous cruises, and then cruises that even preceded your work? Oh yeah, definitely. I think everything is layered. Okay. I, I mean, I often say to people that. Uh, you know, almost all science you do is incremental. Sure. Uh, uh, I mean, bringing it to healthcare, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a, there's a thousands of research grants which are the, the strap line is they're going to cure cancer, and you know everybody makes a, a little step along the way. In fact, that's the reality. Yes. Uh, it, it's kind of a, a disparity. You can't really uh, you can't really say I want to do this little bit of incremental research when you write a grant proposal. You've got to make it sound sound like earth shattering but uh, the reality is that almost all science just adds a uh, one more brick you know to the, the 
the, the developments. So as you finish a cruise, and I like that you used earth shattering, by the way, given that five minutes ago you, you described a bomb going off in a glacier. Um, I, I, when you come back and you start to publish and you start to give talks and you start to kind of get your work out there, over the course of the, the decades that you've been doing this, what is the level of engagement, the level of interest, the level of pushback? What What is that experience like for someone who you come back, you want to, you know, I have this, I have this vision of, you know, coming back as like the kind of the explorers of old and going before the, the, the Royal Hall and showing all the wonderful things that you found and the amazing things that you've learned. You're still doing that work in a different way. What is the response like both on the accelerate this work side and also, hey, pump the brakes. This is, this is nonsense side. Well, I mean, uh, you, you see, you see both sides of that through, uh, through social media, I guess. Yeah. Um, I think there's been a real shift though. I mean, I, to me, I detected a real shift around the time of the, the Paris climate conference. Because uh-huh. in, certainly in the news media, I heard a lot less of, of is this real? Is this actually happening? And a lot, and suddenly most of the debate was, uh, what can we do about it? Uh, which was a, I think, a shift to any major climate conference that had been before. That must have been very satisfying for you because I can only imagine you're on board ship and you're reading the news and there's these questions and these this absurd back and forth and you're sitting there screaming into the ice like this is actually happening. Why don't? Why aren't you listening? Yeah, I guess I guess you do feel like that sometimes, but and and you know you do I do get some engagement with with people deniers of climate change on on uh, social media. Uh, I, I tend to leave them alone now because you're never going to the, the the hardcore people. You're never going to change their minds, and you know actually they're such a minority anyhow. I I, I, I think they're probably not worth worth uh, spending too much time on. I think that's a really important point. You know, my approach too with this and other issues is we don't have time to deal with with this with this minority. It's it's not correct. And we, we, energy needs to be spent doing the work, not kind of dealing with with this sort of ankle biting annoyances. But because there's there's work to be done for sure. And so let's speak to that a little bit. You know, you and I were talking a little bit before around this idea of climate change and how it impacts human health. There, I can see that there's maybe some disconnect between that and the work that you do, and I don't want to assume anything, but. When I approached you with this idea, hey, come on this podcast, this is what Explore the Space is about, I want to connect with the work that you're doing, how did that resonate with you in terms of having a conversation and applying what you're doing to this idea of climate change and human health? It's, it seemed very strange to me. It's something I, yeah. I hadn't really thought about. Um, the last few days, I've, I've done a little bit of reading, and uh, it's been a real eye-opener, I have to say. So step us through that evolution for you, because for me, it's been eye-opening to do the same work reading about you and reading some of your publications that are available online. And, you know, we'll have links to your website, obviously, from the British Antarctic Survey in our show notes. So let's compare journeys a little bit. For me, the, 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 the scientific rigor, that's what I expected, and I was delighted to see it. Some of the f- things that you're finding and the, some of the things that you show on social media, I'll be honest, were more alarming than I expected. And that's been, that's been a little frightening and I'll be completely transparent about that. What has that journey been like for you on the other end to be the one doing the research in Antarctica and thinking about how it may impact human health? Well, I think, it, as I said, it's not something I 
thought much about it at all until until I, I decided to uh, accept your invitation to do this. Yeah. Uh, because I, I guess our research in in the general field of climate change, we're quite a narrow aspect of it because everything we're doing really feeds into this this one variable. It's uh, getting a better handle on sea level change and particularly how ice sheets are going to contribute to sea level change in the future. So uh, all the things about how just simply atmospheric temperature change impacts uh, people, uh, how extreme events can impact them and, and then uh, you know, vectors of disease, how they respond to climate change. It, it's something I've not really thought deeply about. It's so fascinating to hear you say it like that because the way I envision this, and this is sort of my romantic view of this, is this is the way scientists, physicians, the public, governmental organizations, NGOs, we start to link hands to connect around this work because the shared purpose is for us to mitigate the impacts of climate change and keep our planet healthy and keep ourselves and our neighbors healthy and live the lives that we want to live in a responsible fashion. But just like we do in medicine, just like I do in the hospital, we work really hard to break down silos so we can understand each other better. That's what this work is about because I would suggest that it's it's extraordinarily interconnected. The connective tissue between what you're doing and what I do in the hospital, we are one or two steps removed. We are not 15 or 20 steps removed. It is that intimate because if you're understanding sea level rise and I'm seeing people who are being displaced because of sea level change or habitat destruction or impact on the food chain because of that sea level rise, you and I are partners in this work and there's no going back from that. Yeah, I can. I, I think that's true. I think I can see that is is the case. And I, I guess the um, the main impact I can see from sea level rise is yes, people will be displaced, and also this uh, the idea if if you if you flood a lot of areas, then there's a a lot more potential for you know spread of, of mosquitoes, for instance, that may be vectors for diseases. That's a hundred percent correct. So give us your assessment then. I mean, you have you have a, both a strategic and a tactical view of happen, of what is happening with the evolution of the Antarctic ice shelf as a response to climate change and what is actually happening with respect to sea level rise. What is the gestalt in, in your scientific community? Are we at a place where there is still reversibility? Are we at a place where this is accelerating? Are you how 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 able are you to speak to this? Well, that's very much the question that this program I'm engaged yeah, in that yeah. we've we've just embarked on in this this last year. So the research cruise I did was the first year of activity of a, a, a five year program. So and, walk us yeah. through this program then. What is the name of the program? What are your goals? What is the infrastructure of this program? Because I get a sense that this is going to be pivotal work over the next five years. What I'm working on is is the International Thwaites Glacier collaboration. So uh, it's so the the Thwaites Glacier. Many people won't have heard of it, but it's been identified as the most vulnerable large glacier in West Antarctica, and in total, it covers an area the size of Florida or the size of the UK. Um, so it, it's a, it's a big area of ice that's all feeding into one glacier that goes out into this area called the Amundsen Sea. Uh, and it's been changing rapidly over the period, the observational period. Uh, in fact, increasingly rapidly. I was just looking at uh, yesterday at some figures that came out in a paper earlier this year. So it, it's 
its net loss of ice is 35 gigatons per year at the moment, which is, well, over the last 10 years, it's been losing ice at 35 gigatons a year. So one gigaton is approximately a cubic kilometre of ice. It's interesting to compare that with the, before 30 years ago, uh, the best estimate that's been made is it was only lose. Thwaites Lacey was losing about five gigatons a year, and now it's 35. So that's a, a seven-fold increase in that period. And uh, so you were asking, have we passed the, the point of irreversible change? There were actually some articles published uh, five years ago now where somebody made that that suggestion that they said they thought, based on the work they'd done and the, the ice sheet modeling they'd done, that, uh, you know, this part of West Antarctica had passed the point of no return, that whatever happened now, uh, we were going to lose a, a big chunk of the West Antarctic ice sheet, which would probably contribute then that part of the West Antarctic ice sheet would, co would contribute more than a metre to global sea level. Wow. So uh, uh, I think not everybody is, is convinced that this is the case um, because there are – at the time that model was run, there are some uncertainties uh, and some assumptions that had to be made. And what we're doing right now is, is trying to get the, the information so that we don't have to run these model People don't have to run these models so much on assumptions, but they can run them better on, uh, on measured data. I am in many ways elated to hear that this is a project that you're on because in February of this year, so just a couple of months ago, there were a series of articles in major news publications in the United States that spoke about the Thwaites Glacier and they framed it around the discovery of this enormous hole within the ice. Uh, and that was, that was the narrative here. But the, the fact that this is the work that you're doing again, this is that connectivity that is just, it's exhilarating. It's, it's frightening, but it's exhilarating that, you know, you're one of the people that's doing that work that becomes front page news here two months ago. Yeah, well, that, that particular study, that's a group that studies satellite data. So they, they've looked at a lot of the recent satellite data, particularly from Thwaites Lassier, and they had found this one part of the ice front where there's an absolutely phenomenal rate of, of basal melting, higher than anybody had measured anywhere else. Uh, I mean, we know this process is going on where warm water from the deep ocean is coming onto the continental shelf and getting underneath the front of the glacier and, and causing it to melt. I don't think anybody suspected the the, the rates of melt that they uh, that they found in that particular uh, place. But it, it is quite local where they have that, that very high rate. But even so, it's, it's, it's really alarming. And it's actually happening at right in the center line of the glacier at, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is alarming. Are you in a place now where you're home for, it sounds like a good chunk of time, eight, nine months or something. Are you chomping at the yeah. bit to get back out there? Do you have work to do right now? What is the rhythm of life going to be like for you until you're able to get back to the glacier? Yeah, we, so, uh, I have another research cruise next year on the same vessel a part of the same project, going, going to the same place. So what we did this year, this was really a, a very preparatory look at it. And uh, in, in one research cruise, we, we had gathered together uh, three different projects that are all part of the same collaboration. So the, the cruise next year is entirely for, the, for our project, which is the marine geology and geophysics components. 
so we'll be able to do a, a more thorough job. And then the, the following year, the physical oceanographers have a, a who were with us this year. They'll have a, another research cruise. Uh, so that's uh, so I'm yeah. A lot of what I'm doing now is thinking about planning for next year's cruise, and at the same time thinking about how we organize the work on the information we've already got. When you're in these preparatory phases from 10 years ago to now, is there a different sense of urgency? Is there a different sense of we need to get this right, we need to do this, we need to do this quickly? Or is the rhythm of science unflappable? <sighs> uh, I think it's somewhere between those two, uh, two extremes. Okay. I think... Uh, there is a, a very strong feeling uh, of a common mission among everybody who's involved in, in this program, this uh, collaboration. Uh, it was, I think that was evident on the ship this year, that you had people who were nominally working on three distinct projects, even though they're grouped together under the collaboration. And in that situation, you may expect people to be very competitive and, and uh trying to defend their own corner but actually uh because there's a a bigger common aim it was i mean it was a really pleasant working environment with everybody trying to help everybody else out and, and trying to make sure that each project was a success that spirit of collaboration i think is going to be a, a huge driver just as you and i were speaking about a few minutes ago right now you and i can start to collaborate as physician and scientists studying West Antarctic ice loss. This is how these sorts of things start. I, I would suggest that a lot of us, myself included, are starting from a basic level of understanding and we want to be able to take that deeper dive. We get our information, you know, obviously from the same sources as everyone else, social media, you know, the large news outlets. Where do you suggest people look for information, insight that is, that is concise, that is correct, and that is useful? Oh, uh, yeah. So that's a, a difficult question. As you say, there's, there's so much information out there. And, right, uh, right. If, if you Google something, you'll more often than not, well, quite often end up with, with something that's, uh, you know, just the rantings of somebody on the internet. Uh, I, I mean, I always in dialogue with people, if they put some idea to me, I, I, I would always ask, can you show me the peer reviewed paper that that comes from? Because yeah. uh, there's a lot of nonsense out there on the internet that uh, it's just somebody coming up with a random idea and, or has, has, has drawn some spurious graph and then everybody else who, if it feeds into their view of the world, they jump on it. That is, uh, you uh, have a shared journey there for sure. Yeah. And so if, if you, I think scientific peer review is far from a, a, a perfect process and anybody who's been involved in scientific process uh, publishing has their gripes about it and how sometimes it's been unfair to them. But it, 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 it's the best way we have of having a check on quality and making people you know, really re-examine what they're putting in the public domain. Uh, and think about it carefully. And I think by and large, it, it, it does work. So you're uh, so I would always say, show me the article in the peer-reviewed journal that, right. that uh, you know provides the evidence for what you're saying. Part of the tension, though, and we feel this in medicine, is that we put our 
our best stuff goes through that level of scientific rigor as it should. And then it often gets published in journals that may be somewhat obscure and are also barricaded with paywalls. And so our yeah. best stuff doesn't get out there. You and I both know nature abhors a vacuum. So something's going to fill that vacuum. And we deal with the same thing in medicine, as I suspect people who do climate change research experience as well. What I have found has been finding feeds on social media like yours. That's a real powerful driver for my education because I can find people like you. You're going to curate your feed carefully. And I find that to be a very powerful tool. Can you recommend, can you suggest colleagues or other people that you like on social media who do the same work as you do with a carefully curated and, and maintained social media feed that we can follow? Uh, yes, I, I, I think that information is there. I've seen that people, there have been people who've been doing that uh, in clim for climate science in general over the last year. I've seen uh, people who just tweeted lists of here are, you know, here are Twitter accounts you can follow that, uh, that uh, are doing good stuff in this domain. I think that, that those sorts of tools are going to be really important right now while we wait for the infrastructure to change as far as information sharing goes. It's being able to access the Rob Larders on Twitter and other people doing this work quickly, like you know Lancet Countdown and things like that. We can get to that work as quickly as we we're able to open our cell phones and open up our social media accounts, which I think is a really powerful tool for social media to play and a very powerful role for social media to play in this work. I think it, I, I, one of the things that I didn't expect um, that I found with it is it, it's it's often the way now that I find new I find out about new papers that are really relevant to my work that I need to look at is because I I follow other people in the same field uh, when somebody publishes something of course they say hey you know we've published this paper and put the link up there and uh, yeah uh, what you said about paywalls is very true it, it's um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure we all encounter it actually because you know if I'm sitting at my desk at work I've got access to most of the stuff that I want but if I'm uh, fiddling around on an iPad at home and I think oh I'd like to just look at something and then I find of course because I'm coming in with a different uh, IP address uh, sometimes I, I'm paywalled for things I wouldn't be if I was sitting at work so yeah and that's a real and, barrier and, yeah, and, that's going to prove to uh, be a bigger and bigger barrier to progress I think and, and then I, I have noticed because some people I uh, have a dialogue with online are people who are science communicators really who don't have uh, an affiliation with the university but they're doing a really valuable job but they're constantly of course they, they're hitting barriers with paywalls so they, they ask their friends in the scientific community to uh, sort of break the copyright for them so your feed is a carefully curated one i've learned a ton from it i've learned a ton from you and I think that these sorts of connections and relationships will prove to be increasingly more and more valuable. How do we find you on Twitter? How do we find the work that you're doing? Well, I mean, people can find me. I, I, I'm just, uh, I'm not one of these people who has a, a very clever uh, Twitter handle. I'm just at RD Larter. I will always put out uh, links to, to papers that, that the group I'm working in has, has, has published. I have your website as well from the British Antarctic Survey, so I'm going to post a link to that episode in my show notes, and I think that that's an amazing resource and an amazing collection of all the work that you've been doing as well. Thwaites, the Thwaites Glacier Collaboration has uh, – its website is, is thwaitesglacier.org. Uh, we just had some 
project leadership team meetings the last couple of days, and uh, there's a lot of work going into to bringing that website up to date and making sure it, it's got new content on it. This is a great connection. This is a great conversation. I'm excited about the work that you're doing. I'm more excited, to be totally honest, after speaking with you for the last 35 minutes around us seeing this shared space that we're working on and not having realized it. To me, that that's a eureka moment, and I'm thrilled about it. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Thank you for kind of stepping into the tension about, hey, I don't know who this person is. I don't know what the show's about, but let's talk because this is what happens. It's great. This is good stuff, and I'm, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, I mean, when you invited me, I had a a look at your your, your website, and that that, that looks uh, very good. You know, very good. I think it's very clearly a very professional effort. And I thought, yeah, this. And and then look at all the stuff that you've you've done on there on on your uh, on your your podcasts. It's uh, yeah, <laughs> something different. That's right. That's right. Well, I appreciate the kind feedback. Thank you so much. We will be following along. I can't wait for your next your next season to go back down to the Thwaites Glacier. And when you're done, we'll have you come back on the show and well, keep us up to date on what you're seeing. Well, we probably won't have quite so much uh, public presence as we did this year. This year we were really, uh, it was a novel thing. We had two journalists uh, who came along on the ship with us. Oh, wow. Who were, so you, you probably probably partly became aware of what we were doing through the the immense output they were putting out, and so they and they were able to, to you know to talk to the scientists every day, so they were getting their stories straight. And we also had a National Science Foundation science writer with us, a lady who writes books about sea level rise, uh, Elizabeth Rush, and she was writing articles for National Geographic as well while she was there. That's the kind of coverage this work needs, and I'm glad to hear that. This has been outstanding. We will be following along. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.